0: From Relay FM, this is Download, recorded March 21st, 2019. This is Episode 96 Hanging with My Amazon Prime Buddies. Welcome to Download, where we cover the most interesting technology stories of the week. I am your host Jason Snell, and I'm joined, as always, except for last week when he abandoned me by my
1: co-host Stephen Hackett. Hello. <laughs> it was Spring Break. I had a family trip, but I, I did miss you. I did miss the show. Spring Break. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I'm
0: suddenly I'm I'm imagining some a movie in which there are various movies about Spring Break. I'm imagining some of those is all, well, but that probably is
1: not your your Spring
0: Break is probably nothing like that.
1: No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I have elementary school-age children. It was pretty straightforward.
0: Maybe I'm thinking of a movie where elementary school children go on spring sure. break. Sure. I'm yeah, not. That's what you're that thinking of. movie mm-hmm. doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, Sesame Street presents Spring Break. It's not that exciting. <laughs> uh, all right, we should get into it. We're going to be joined later by John Voorhees uh, of Max Stories, who is at uh, GDC, the game developer's conference in i think that's what it stands for in san francisco uh far away in san francisco he's miles away from me um to talk about uh what google is doing at uh at gdc which is an interesting announcement that they made and then we'll also talk about apple's big week with john Um, apple announced a bunch of stuff this week uh, in advance of their big Event that they're doing next week, but we should probably get down to the other stories, the headlines, before we bring in, in John. Um, and I guess we should start with Google and the EU. The EU keeps finding Google for things. It's like they do. do. It's like I, I like the, there was one story that I read that just sort of said, "Let's." Here's the running tab for Google's antitrust bill at uh, the EU, which is eight point two billion euro. Um, for various things uh, in in truest fashion of governments regulating tech companies. This was a, a penalty over um, the latest one over AdSense, mm-hmm. which, as the Verge article that we'll link in the show notes points out, is uh, not, an, a, a, not a super important part of Google's business now, but it was in 2006 when it did things that the EU is slapping it on the wrist for. So uh, take that. Google, your old practices are history or something. <laughs> uh, but but there are sure. some there are some ramifications for Android users, right? One of the things that they're that they're asking them to do is even more uncoupling. There's a nice Google blog post where they say uh, we're doing this for the for our customers and also because the regulators mandated that we do it. Uh, they're kind of uncoupling right. <laughs> um, search. And search engines and browsers Mm -hmm. sure, and uh, making it uh, possible to do, you know, more, uh, you know, basically uncouple, if you want to as a user, uncouple more Google services from the default inside Android.
1: Right. So it's going to be basically an option for Google says existing and new Android devices in Europe. And a user will get to choose the browser and search apps that they want to use. Now, of course, you could do that in Android, but it's going. It seems like it's going to be much more like the browser choice deal. So I have a link to that in the show notes too. But again, in the EU uh, back in 2010, Microsoft was made to basically put up this window in Windows, and it was a horizontally scrolling list of browsers. Hey, there and, are other browsers. Here are some. Yes, uh, I'm actually looking at a GIF of this right now, and there's so much in here I've never heard of. But giving people the knowledge and an easy way to change their defaults, which yeah, you can do that on an Android phone just like you could do it in Windows. But a lot of people may not know that. They may just think that you know you get Chrome and Google search, and and that's fine. And I think the reality is most people will just leave the default. Yeah. But they are making them surface this decision in a, in a way very similar to what they did in 2010. I found that parallel interesting. It, it's interesting, too, because over time, Google has used Google Play services to sort of separate things from Android. There's lots of Android devices that run in, in places like China or other parts of Asia that don't have Google Play services. So they don't have things that uh, – you know are sort of googly and they've separated android out and i think that'll be an interesting thing to keep an eye on as this moves forward will we continue to see google separate its services and android so as not to jeopardize the latter with the former it's it's a really interesting relationship between those things and i would imagine one that the eu is not done finding Google over quite yet,
0: yeah, and also what will that mean in the u s Will any of these practices ultimately come to the u s either out of a threat? I mean, once mm-hmm. they built this for the eu, they could offer it easily as a way to try to blunt new regulations in the u s be like, oh, we yeah. can do this thing for you, like please sure. don't please don't make us do other things, we can just let just let us do right. these things, and I also wonder, looking at some of this like I wonder about the EU's approach to Apple in this same regard, right? Like the EU could say, "Well, Apple, you are also um, prioritizing your own browser and, mm-hmm. and over this, and your own." They they have no search engine, right? So there's that where you, you can already pick a search engine, um, but on the browser side, they could potentially do that, and that would be interesting because um, Apple has integrated WebKit so deeply into iOS that that would be a a harder thing for them to do, I think.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, with iOS, you just have Safari, you can't change the default, but iOS has a much smaller install base than Android. And that's, I think what's maybe keeping Apple safe in this regard in the EU. But, uh, there's a debate for another time about, does Apple have a monopoly over iOS and what that may or may not mean, but Android being so much bigger across so many different vendors is a much bigger target for this sort of thing. But, uh, Yeah, I would imagine that, especially in the U.S., if regulation comes to pass and if you look at like the the people running for president in the Democratic side, there's a lot of talk about this sort of thing. And I would imagine that with the Democratic House, we will see some of this begin to form. Um, Like we've always said on download, I don't know how many times we have this conversation, like these regulations need to be put in place by people who understand the technology. And that part worries me a little bit, Mm -hmm. but – You know, we'll deal with that when we get there. I guess. Yeah.
0: Um, Instagram. I have an Instagram. I know you like Instagram. You use Instagram Instagram. a lot. So uh, um, Instagram is testing in-app shopping, Mm -hmm. where you can actually like. So there are ads in Instagram, but you can you can have a you know view product and check out on Instagram, and instead of leaving Instagram at all, you can basically see something and buy it right within Instagram. Which you know, I as an Instagram user, I I wanted to ask you, how do you feel Mm. about this? Is this a good thing because you can stay on Instagram? Mm. Or are you worried that this is just going to even more kind of commercialize and junk up your Instagram content?
1: I think that's sort of the question. And uh, I I would say that I am taking a... um, I took Instagram off my phone for Lent. That's a very specific thing. But uh, my wife and I did that together because we found ourselves spending a lot of time there. But I do like Instagram and I will return. There's already been some of this. This is not all new. There've been ads on Instagram that you can interact with and it takes you to a a purchasing system. This story makes it seem like it's going to be more baked in to the experience and and it makes a ton of sense for Instagram and the brands that advertise on it, right? You don't have to hop out to Mobile Safari or even like a, a browser, you know, web view in the app to do this potentially. I think that's really good for for that side of it. Um, I think Instagram does have a balance they need to strike uh, of the ad versus content ratio. It, it feels like for some users, like like just seeing my wife's Instagram and the and. In my use of Instagram, I see fewer ads than she does. Um, Now, as I've talked about on this show and others, our ad targeting at our house is really mixed up. I basically get lots of things, lots of products for women, as does she. And uh, that may be because we don't have Facebook accounts and we share an IP address. And so it's just sort of jumbled up. So they need to get that stuff right. But the balance of how many ads you see versus how many pieces of content you see I don't know if Instagram's gotten that quite right for everybody yet. And this will, if this is successful, Instagram will have the temptation. of like, oh, well, if we just increase this by 10%, you know, we see our, sale, our sales go up and the cut we get from those sales go up. And that's going to be something that they need to keep an eye on because if you if they tip it too far, people will get annoyed. And I don't know where people go after Instagram. Instagram is the social network of the moment, and it's been having a moment for a long time now. Hopefully they don't mess that up.
0: One of the things that I've seen people comment on that I think is interesting about this is the suggestion that this is actually an area of weakness for Amazon, Hmm. that Amazon has not done a good job in terms of social dynamics of shopping, in terms of sharing and intuiting from your social presence what stuff you're interested in. And it's an advantage of Instagram because it's obviously in the middle of your social graph there. And while Amazon leads in so many different areas, I thought that was an interesting viewpoint that um, this is a place where... Amazon, you know, nobody goes to Amazon to see what their friends are buying, right? Like they don't, they don't do that. And Instagram has proven so powerful in terms of influencers, especially in certain areas. And I know this with my, with my daughter too, like style stuff, makeup, clothes, uh, decor, like there are so many things that are super influential people and brands on Instagram. And that 's where those conversations are happening, so on that level um, it, it i i really do think that amazon is is weak there, and this is an opportunity for Instagram to strike and make a lot of money as the conduit between brands and people
1: mm-hmm. uh, Joe in the chat room brought up Amazon Spark, which I thought was gone. It turns out it looks like it 's still around. Which is a weird hodgepodge of like the Amazon store and you can talk to your friends if they're all on Prime and it's sort of a social network, Mm. but it's not. It's very strange. I don't think it went anywhere. I was just
0: hanging with my Amazon Prime buddies. Woo!
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. It it hasn't, really. I mean, that's just like a great place to be. Mm -hmm. But I'll put that in the show notes. If you haven't seen this, it's worth a look. It's a very strange set of ideas. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Mm -hmm. uh. It's it's true. It's
0: like funny. You know, you think of Amazon as a behemoth, but there are lots of things that Amazon is uh, is actually not good at, and that is that is one of them. is is social. It's just not. It's just not its thing. Um, oh, here's a story that I thought you would like as an aficionado of old things. Wow. Well, you are right. You like old <laughs> tech true. and unearthing it's, it's things, true. old tech notes and old computers and things like that. So, yeah. my space. Mm -hmm. which was people are not going to believe this actually if you're young enough you may not even believe this myspace was the definitive social network before facebook it was Mm -hmm. the leader and it was not like a wannabe it was huge and it it's uh lasting uh you know the, the the staying power it got after facebook became big was largely because of its music footprint it was a very good place to to uh serve music it was you know soundcloud way before soundcloud was for example and 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 in some ways youtube before youtube for for music um but this is a story about how You should not ever kind of trust your content to the cloud and to the internet um, because MySpace has now apologized. It did a server migration that uh, accidentally was corrupted, meaning that uh, any photos, videos, and audio files uploaded older than three years ago are probably dead. Ooh, and so this is this is like 50 million old music files it's uh many people's entire uh kind of childhood or high school or college uh experience
1: it's all gone it's uh mm. amazing it is a good point about having, you know. I, I spoke to some friends about this who had bands in the day or had projects on MySpace, and in speaking to a handful of people, they're like, "Oh yeah, that means that stuff's definitely gone. Like, like they don't have those files anymore. MySpace was the only place for them, and that's a real bummer if you had creative work that you know you didn't have elsewhere. It is definitely a lesson in keeping your uh, copy of your data locally." Uh, there's a, there's an interesting part of the story, too. There's a tweet in this BBC article um, about, uh, I'm deeply skeptical it was an accident. Maybe they couldn't be bothered huh. of hosting old MP3s, which is, um, I don't know if that's actually true or not, but it is, it is sad. And even though MySpace is just a shell of what it once was, this is only going to further damage what... If it had any reputation left, it's over now, right? Like it, it is.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's well, done. I, and I, my, for me, the larger issue is that um, you are, if you're relying on companies that are, and in many cases, companies that bought companies that bought companies, where this was a minor asset or something that doesn't make money, and uh, they are not, they are not motivated to be the stewards of your content. So if you mm-hmm. have content, uh, you know, you should. Put it somewhere else too. You should hold on to it. But uh, I think about like Flickr changing hands and then changing terms and saying, we're going to, and they communicated it, but ultimately it's sort of like, we're going to delete a lot of photos. So if you either pay us or get your photos off or whatever, but we're going to delete them, um, you just can't count on it. But there's this other impact, which is the web, right? Like this breaks links on the web. Mm. Like there are all sorts of things on the web that said, oh, uh, like a wikipedia page that said he became famous because of this song and now that link to that song is gone it's just evaporated and some of that stuff might pop up on like the internet archive or something like that but a lot of that stuff is just gone and that makes the web um it's one of the frustrations as somebody who was on the web in the early days like the links break and stuff just disappears and all of a sudden that page that you you can keep the your pages up for 15 20 years but the links in them will rot and mm-hmm. it is, uh, you know, it, it is on one level the nature of things, but also it's like kind of troubling where where is the history going? It, are people aware that we're losing all, a lot of this detail? And that doesn't, uh, you know, that 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 bothers me a lot. The idea that that uh, the stuff is just vanishing and is gone forever. Absolutely. I'm reminded of... Um, In the 70s, the BBC uh, needed some extra videotapes. (laughs) And so they, like, erased whole... The master copies of all these shows they made in the 60s. Because they needed the videotapes. The videotapes were Mm. expensive. And some of those shows were saved, but they were saved in weird ways. So, like, they were saved because they were put on film and shipped overseas to other broadcasters and those film recordings remained or a collector fished it out of the bin and took it home. And that recording was saved. Um, And in some cases it was fans recorded the audio of those shows. So the audio remains, even though the video is gone. And um, I think about that for some of this stuff, like um, John Gruber and I were on a podcast with Merlin Mann right after the iPhone was announced and we were talking about apps because there were no apps. Remember when the iPhone announced? It was just the web you were supposed to use. And in that conversation, we basically predicted the App Store. We were like, "It's obvious there will be a store for apps, and people can write software, and Apple will probably curate it, and it'll come out next year," which was totally right. Um, and that was hosted on one of these uh, audio services that that went under, and that whole thing disappeared. And that bothered me because uh, I really liked that being able to point to that and say see we got it right Mm -hmm. but uh and then one day somebody sent me a zip file with the entire contents of that podcast that had been lost because they had downloaded it onto their mac in itunes and they had it and they saved it so you never know some of those myspace files may be out there somewhere but whether they ever get back to their parent is an open question i think
1: i mean even at relay where like i pay the hosting bill each month i back up all the MP threes we make for yeah. the same reason. That if something were to happen, I've got them where I can put my hands on those files. And if it's something important to you, this is a good lesson and a good reminder of that lesson to keep things keep things close.
0: Yeah. Exactly right. Well, one more story uh, before we bring in John Voorhees that I wanted to touch on briefly. And and we we beat up Facebook a lot on this podcast because Facebook is getting beat up a lot, and we're talking about it. Um, But I want to mention in passing, obviously, the horrible shootings in Christchurch, New Zealand that happened. Um, I wanted to point people to some stories about the efforts to suppress the video of that event just because... I wanted, to, I wanted to point out the, the mind-boggling scale, and people and human brains are bad at scale. The scale, if you're YouTube or Facebook or any platform that lets anybody upload anything and have it go live that you have to deal with. And there are a bunch of stories about this, about how YouTube and Facebook were, uh, fingerprinting and, you know, hashing those videos and auto removing them. But then they were, you know, there were ones that get passed and then they've got screeners who are looking for it. They're trying to adjust their search terms to block certain search terms. and, And the impression I got in reading these stories is basically, if you let people upload anything, you can't globally, right you can't stop it. You can try mm-hmm. lots of things to fight it, and you and you should right you should fight it, but uh, I, the scale is so enormous that it's kind of mind boggling and and it's very difficult in real time to deal with it and that that was the part of these stories that I thought was interesting. It's just that even if you are fully committed to getting something like video footage of a mass murder off of your platform, if your platform is designed to make it easy for literally anybody in the world to just upload a video and have it go live, you are, um, you are
1: probably going to fail. Yeah. YouTube struggled with it as well. There's this article that, um, there were 1.5 million copies of the video, uh, 1.2 million were blocked and upload. So YouTube's, uh, automated tools stopped it, um, which is great. Uh, but clearly it's a reminder that there, there is still work to do, but I think a reminder too, just, this is a difficult problem and is, that's not to excuse the copies that did make it out, but it's a, it's a, something we have to deal with in our modern world, right? right. There, 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 there's content out there that we don't want, like no one wants out there, but these companies are still trying to catch up with that every day. Well, it makes me wonder if some of the
0: fundamental pre- premises of the earlier days of the internet are just wrong. And I think about something like uh, when we debate about Apple and the App Store being um, a, a bit of a walled garden, like some of the things that you could argue uh, and Apple should do more about this, too, is this idea of trusted versus untrusted and mm-hmm. that if you if you 've got a a source, I know you want to make everybody be able to post videos on youtube that 's fine, but the idea maybe the assumption that anybody can just sign up for an account and post a video and it goes live and and similarly with Facebook um, maybe that's just a mistake. Maybe the answer really needs to be that some you know until you earn some level of trust, you don't get to do that. you have to go through a process of of approval and maybe it's an algorithmic approval and maybe it's you know maybe they're looking at your pattern of behavior and nobody wants to hear that everybody wants to be like i have a right to post my things on the internet and have everybody see them immediately but you don't you don't actually have that right and and i, I think in this in this discussion it is worth mentioning that you know youtube and facebook allowing anybody to post anything is not a given, like they could change their rules too. And maybe we need to think about that. Maybe we need to think about algorithms that look at people's track records and look at their history and the kind of content they post and limit or block certain video uploads until they are vetted by, again, an algorithm or a person or something like that. Just because um, we've seen that when the doors are open, um, you can't deal with the result in a case like this. I don't know. I don't know. But it's a very hard problem um, when you're trying to build a platform that, lets, that enables anybody in the world to communicate. This is the other part of that. And there, this, this is a, uh, a good example of just how hard it is. I think you're right. All right. When we return, we will bring in John Voorhees. We're going to talk about GDC and we're also going to talk about Apple. But first, let me tell you about our first sponsor. This episode of Download is brought to you by Text Expander from our friends at Smile. Copy and paste is not a great way to keep track of the things you type over and over again. Text Expander makes you more productive. Text Expander takes care of all the words and phrases that you're typing over and over again. Look, computers are here to serve us until they take over and uh, kill us all. But until then, they're here to serve us. The whole point of computers is there are lots of tasks that we do that are repetitive, that are redundant. And although computers are often not very bright, what they're really good at is taking care of competitive tasks. And that's what Text Expander does. Frequently used phrases. Don't ever type the same four sentences into an email over and over again. You turn it into a snippet, you do a short, Key, you know, key or two abbreviation, and the whole thing pops out. You can use it anywhere, you can use it in pages, in Word, in Excel, Adobe Illustrator, InDesign, many more. And you will save so much time. And there is a shiny new version, Text Expander 6.5. It's got a new visual editor for snippets, gives you visual access to fill ins, dates, date math, nested snippets. A lot of the power of Text Expander that if you had a hard time figuring out exactly how to implement it all, it's way easier now, much more visual. There's better automation now with JavaScript syntax highlighting. Windows users get offline editing support and improved expansion. And don't forget to search the Text Expander blog, there are plenty of tips. Tips and snippet tricks available. I have used Text Expander for a long time. All my live blogs at MacWorld back in the day could not have been done at the speed that they were done without Text Expander snippeting out things like the current time and a bunch of HTML and all sorts of weird stuff that we did back then. Just you know, don't type the same thing over and over again. Use Text Expander and. With a new release, 6.5, it's a great time to try it out. Go to Textexpander.com slash podcast right now. You'll get 20% off your first year. That's Textexpander.com slash podcast and get 20% off your first year. Thank you to Textexpander for supporting Download and all of Relay FM. Okay, now we are joined by John Voorhees from Max Stories, who's reporting from the far off land of GTC in San Francisco. You're miles away from me, John. Welcome to Download.
2: Thank you very much, thanks for having me, guys. yeah, I, I do feel like i 'm in jason snell 's backyard kind of i mean yeah. it 's not quite that close, but yeah. my brother lives not too far away, and that 's where I happen to be today.
0: I keep Moscone Center in my backyard that's yes <laughs> yes <laughs> that 's how that works sure sure so so tell us about the the g d c story that I think is the most interesting is google 's big presence there and this stadia product where they or whatever it is, it's sort of a little bit amorphous. But it is the idea that Google is going to go all in on cloud gaming and the ability to take a, uh, you know, take a Wi Fi controller and put it on any device and play uh, theoretically any game, although I think it's just the one game that that they've announced so far. So tell me, what do you think about uh, Google getting into this cloud
2: gaming in in a big way? And what, what does it all mean? It's really interesting because the presentation that happened on Tuesday morning really kind of didn't fit really well with the themes of GDC so far because the way this conference works, and this is a huge conference, there's I think thirty thousand people here learning about game development and you know vendors and developers and all sorts of companies here uh, talking about gaming. And the first two days of the talk, are the Indie Developers Summit, so it's it's the smaller games, it's kind of the 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 mobile games that you'll see on iOS and Android and on consoles that are they're done by smaller teams, and then the Wednesday through Friday sessions is when all the big players come in and they open up an expo and they've got you know they've got Epic and they've got uh, Unity and Unre- the Unreal Engine being shown off and all this kind of stuff, and Google's presentation though came on Tuesday morning, which is right in the middle of this indie thing, which, I mean, obviously, this is something that indie games could also take advantage of, but it felt like something that I would have expected to see later in the week. But for whatever reason, they opened up a ballroom in Moscone South to announce this new Stadia product. And there are a lot of questions that are unanswered. I mean, the the idea behind it is that... Google thinks that they're going. That, that Google thinks that they can remove a lot of the frustrations and frictions from gaming by eliminating entirely the console. For you know, first and foremost, the only hardware shown off here was that controller that you mentioned that operates with Wi-Fi, and the way they're doing this is they're moving the actual gaming to their servers. And they made the point, which is a good one. They've got a network unlike any other of a company anywhere in the world with nodes close to the players, which they say they can use and leverage to make this a fast experience. Um, Last fall, they tested Assassin's Creed Odyssey running through a Chrome browser. And that's how this whole thing works. It all works through Chrome. And they were able to get I think it was, they got 1080p, uh, 60 frames per second through a Chrome browser for people who had roughly a 25 megabit per second download connection, which is pretty good. But what they said on Tuesday was with that same sort, uh, well, back up a second. They didn't actually say what kind of connection you would Mm. need, which was one of the big gaping holes at first in this presentation. But they said that when it launches at the end of the year, you'll be able to do... 4K HDR at 60 frames per second, which is kind of amazing if you think about it over the internet. Now, they didn't say anything at the time about the connection speed you needed, but later on, they told other outlets like The Verge and some other gaming publications that it will be able to do that through the same roughly 25 megabits per second uh, download speed. And that down the road, they think they can hit 8K HDR with 120 frames per second, which to me is just mind-boggling. But that's that's what they're trying to do in terms of getting the uh, getting the service up and running. But you know, there are a lot of unanswered questions that you don't you don't know we don't know yet what it's going to cost. Uh, we don't know. We haven't seen any games except for Assassin's Creed. They mentioned that something you know, a new version of Doom called Doom Eternal is going to come at launch, but. That was a pretty big hole in the presentation. I mean, my guess is that a lot of these game companies, although you know Google says 100 studios have their developer kits, that not many people have committed yet to actually delivering games. So it, it remains to be seen how popular this this becomes among game developers. Right. I think there are some
0: real business model questions. Right. Like, do you want to be a part of this? And and you know, I assume they're not gonna like they're not legally allowed to do things like just put a bunch of playstations in Iraq and buy a bunch of discs right they have to right. they have to work with the developers on it and and so many of these developers are tied to the the consoles and there are you know platform exclusives and the consoles ha- I, console makers all have their own streaming strategies too because they realize that this is something that's coming so it seems like you know it's great google's got the
2: cloud credibility here but does it have the gaming credibility really yeah you know i don't think so not yet and you could kind of see that at the beginning of the presentation when they you know they tried to relate what they do what google does to to gaming but you know like they use game theory and their ar their ai models and all these things to improve search and their other other prod, products but it's just it's not gaming and you know the gaming that they do have is they have obviously the google play store so their games on android so they have some experience there but that's a very different market than uh you know your traditional console market and and there are you know to your point there is competition coming on this because uh microsoft is working on a streaming service that the word is they're going to show off big time at e3 which comes i believe in june and Amazon's even been rumored to be working on some kind of streaming service. So, it, you know, we'll have to see. They did, to, to address in part the issue of, you know, game, a, a pipeline of games, they have started their own game studio called Stadia Gaming and Entertainment, which is being run by an industry veteran. So they are going to be funding and creating their own games and helping mm-hmm. third parties bring new games to the platform as well.
0: I, I love the idea of just playing games and having kind of a universal platform where all the games are. Um, but of course, everybody is going to want to run that platform and control it, which means that the universality will never happen. But right. my my biggest issue here is just that I, I think everybody kind of agrees that in a theoretical future where uh, speeds internet speeds are high and uh, and you can kind of like stream anything. That this sort of thing is not only possible but perhaps inevitable, but in the near term it you know i I actually i'm going to admit i watched uh I watched a uh I think a verge video that summarized this that that Steven put in in the show notes, and there was a moment when they were playing clips from Google on stage where i I could not help but shout out an expletive. At some of the claims they were making that I thought were um, kind of ridiculous. And specifically the 4K 60 frames per second video thing where I thought to myself, okay, imagine we can stream 4K video, uh, but there's a buffer. You always have a buffer. Imagine having zero buffer available and being able to play a game. A game where, so games, you can't have a buffer and any hiccup in the stream. And you're dead, basically. And, right. Absolutely. And, and like, I don't know about everybody else's. I have a pretty fast internet connection. That's not how the internet works in people's houses today. It just doesn't. Like buffering Netflix and Amazon and everybody at Apple. They're all they're all buffering. They build up a big buffer. They download a whole bunch of stuff in advance so that when that internet connection hiccups, they can. Uh, they can uh, have it like be invisible um, Netflix dynamically will change and, and many of the other services to change the resolution they're sending you and the bit rate they're sending you in order to keep it all flowing if there's a pause it's not the end of the world it picks up and like none of that is acceptable in gaming. And so when I see them boast about this, I think, well, who is this really going to be for in the near term? It's almost nobody. I- and it feels like just as extreme as people building gaming PCs or even buying, you know, the most expensive gaming consoles where it's this really niche group that's super into it, but like I just I don't think I don't think internet in most people's homes certainly in the US, but I think in general internet infrastructure can withstand this sort of approach right now. So it seems like a cool idea, but I just don't even see how it's. I mean, I, I get that it's theoretically possible. I just I, I'm skeptical about the environments our internet connections live in.
2: Yeah, I, I share your skepticism. I mean, there was a lot of excitement in the room, as you can imagine, because these this was a developer crowd, and you know, Google, Google's promising is the elimination of setting up hardware and downloading games and doing patches and all those things that makes playing these AAA console games frustrating for people and that that would be fantastic but you know you're absolutely right that the technology has to be rock solid and it can't there can't be hiccups there can't be latency there is latency in games because there's always latency introduced to some degree when you have you know wireless controllers or even in your TV and there, there's different things in that system but they're all known and they tend to be constants that that can be corrected for whereas the internet is kind of changing you know whatever uh, you know download rate and, and latency and other issues are being streamed to your house at any particular time changes now one thing that i was told by some of the developers who i've been talking to during this week is that this is really a play for 5g down the road mm. because uh they think that you know 5g will solve a lot of these problems you know that but that is not a end of 2019 solution to this problem this product's going <laughs> to launch and it's going to have a hard time getting traction if they're really banking on 5g
1: well john 5g is going to fix everything you it it's it's the miracle drug it, the point about the internet connection i think is is the point to make but it's interesting too google's not the only ones doing this microsoft's dabbling in this as are others clearly more than one company think this is maybe not the future, but a future of gaming. And yeah, it just seems too soon to me.
2: Yeah, it is. You know, there is a whole nother part of this, which is makes a lot of sense from Google's standpoint. And that's kind of the YouTube portion of this. Because, you know, YouTube has been... Uh, it started out as one of the main places that gamers go to share video of games and that's been challenged a little bit with things like twitch and i think part of this play is also to you know reestablish youtube as the place to go because what there there were two things that they announced that were particularly interesting one is called uh, state share so Imagine watching a YouTube video of your favorite favorite streamer who just did some kind of incredibly complex level of a game. They can share what is essentially just a link that would allow their fans to tap that, you know, click into that link and play picking up exactly from that position. And that does, you know, that does a couple of things. One that just kind of brings those creators, those YouTube creators and their fans a little closer together, which is good for the people making the videos. But it also is good for the developers because it gets people excited about the games and give it, gives them the ability to buy that game right there and jump in and experience the same thing. There is more for us to talk about. We will.
0: uh, We we uh, one day all podcasts will be streamed where you can press a button and immediately pick up the state of the podcast. And maybe not. Maybe not. Uh, But first, uh, before we talk about, uh, we got the story you might have missed. We got Apple. We got some other stuff. Uh, Let me tell you about our next sponsor. This episode of Download is also brought to you by Burrow. Your home is important. You want to come home to some place that feels comfortable, maybe looks stylish, and is designed to fit you. Burrow is rethinking how people shop for and live with their sofa. This is the centerpiece of your living room, right? The place where you're going to sit, you're going to watch TV, watch a movie, do some work, maybe even eat dinner. Do you eat dinner sometimes in the living room? I do sometimes. Burrow will let you easily customize a high-quality sofa online, and it can be shipped for free in one week. It adapts to your life. It's scratch and stain-resistant. You don't have to worry about spills. It's got a built-in USB charger, so you can charge your devices right from your sofa. That is fantastic. The fabric is free of harmful chemicals, and the frame is made from sustainably sourced hardwood, and it's a sofa that grows with you. You can make Burrows bigger at any time just by adding in new pieces Easily set them up, easily disassemble them, no tools required. They're designed for comfort. You can customize every detail. You can pick low armrests, you can pick high armrests. The proprietary foam inside is supportive yet cozy. And don't forget to check out their line of stylish pillows and throws too, made from soft, handwoven fabric ready to complement your new sofa. Burrow was recently named one of the best inventions of 2018 by Time magazine, and you can get $75 off your award winning Burrow sofa. By visiting burrow.com slash download. That's B U R R O W Burrow.com slash download for $75 off your order. Thank you, Burrow, for supporting download and all of Relay FM. And now it is time for the story. You might have missed something that may have flown under your radar, but we think it's worth your attention. Steven, what's our story you might
1: have missed for this week? I came across this headline and I just I just laughed. And I knew that mm-hmm. was a, a good a good signal that should be in the show. So at t CEO Randall Stevenson was at an event in Washington, D.C. yesterday being interviewed. And during the interview, looks down at his Apple Watch and seems to tap it and, and do something with it. And he makes a joke that, oh, I got a robocall. And then he doubles down and says, yes, I got a robocall. I canceled it. You know, I'm sorry. This is... In the background of all of this is that the FCC is being pressured by lawmakers and consumers and John Oliver and, John and his Oliver, audience yep. mm-hmm. to, <laughs> to deal with this. Um, consumers received 26 billion scam calls last year in the United States alone. I don't pick up my phone anymore because even with apps to block them, they get through. There's so many of them. And the... The, just, the CEO of AT&T not being exempt from this just makes me happy that he has the same misery we do. Now, he seems to be unable to act on that misery, but I, I like that he's suffering as well. Yep. Yep. Is that dark? Is that dark that I like that?
0: Uh, I just checked and it's not. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, our, our next topic with John and, and Stephen, I know you've got a lot here. So, Apple is having a week. Apple is doing an event next week that we'll talk about next week. That will probably be about all of its services, but in the run-up to that, it's clearing the decks of everything else it's got ready to go uh, after sort of slumbering uh, from the first of the year till now in terms of announcements. It is alive with new iPads. There's a new iPad Air, a new iPad Mini, a refreshed line of iMacs, some new AirPods. I uh, I got the pleasure of uh, well okay I don't want to sound sarcastic here I got the pleasure of interviewing the iMac product manager I had the pleasure of flying to New York to do it but I did it uh, so I've been busy I've been I wrote an iPad Mini review there's new there's a lot of stuff going on there Apple with the PR blitz the week before they do their big services thing uh and uh you know what do you make of all this uh john what about like the way that apple is doing this and if i mean we'll talk about the products a little bit too but how do you read the
2: the pr blitz strategy this week i have no idea what to think anymore because this is very (laughs) i mean what's what's gotten into apple this is very un-apple i i uh you know we had we had monday Then we had Tuesday, and I I really kind of thought it was over. And then there was Wednesday, and then all of a sudden, I thought maybe we're going to see Thursday and Friday announcements too. And it turns out, no, we're not – it doesn't look like we – we're definitely not, I don't think, getting a Thursday announcement, but uh, and I doubt we'll get a Friday one. But, yeah, this is kind of unusual. I guess, you know, they've had a lot of things that have been – that that they've been working on, I could have if we weren't having the event next week, which presumably will be for the video service. I think you could have put these three days of press releases together and had a pretty good, pretty good show.
1: Yeah, I agree. Clearly, they just want to clear the decks and have everyone focused on the media, right? If if this stuff hadn't come out the whole time, they'd be like, where are the AirPods? Are they not gonna? Are they not gonna announce the AirPods? And and now they can focus on, you know, Steve Carell and his and his uh, show, and, and Oprah, and all these other people they're going to bring in and, and tout their new service.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's probably right. Um, uh, well, let's talk about the products at least a little bit. These are not earth-shattering products. These are not products that require uh, a, uh, an announcement, but they're kind of interesting. Um, the iPad, if you told me that 2019 would be the year that Apple released a new uh, like MacBook Air and iPad Air, or late 2018, but like if you told me a year ago new Airs are on the way, iPad mm-hmm. and MacBook. I'd be like, ha, 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 ha no, right. it's not going to happen. And a new iPad mini, I'd be like, pull the other one. This is not going to happen. And this is what we got. So let's start with the iPad. Steven a uh, little, little friendly iPad. I got one here, uh, the, yeah. back from the dead. And then the uh, adapting that older 10.5 iPad Pro and kind of taking it down a little bit more in price and
1: removing a few features and making mm-hmm. sort of the most capable
0: iPad Air ever, too.
1: Yeah, I think the the iPad Air is more interesting, so I'll get to that in a second. But the iPad Mini brings it the, a four-year-old product, like you said, kind of back to life. Uh, the A12 processor, Apple Pencil support. I think a lot of people, when the when the Apple Pixel first started rolling out, I guess in 2015, a lot of people, myself included, like, man, it'd be so cool to have this with a mini because it's like a super portable. You can just have it like in, in a small bag or even, you know, like in a, a jacket pocket or something and sort of have like a digital notebook. And I feel like this iPad mini now makes that promise a reality that, hey, you can have something really small, use a pencil to draw and sketch. And so I think there, there will be a number of people who want it for that purpose. I think it's good, too, to have something that size. In the Verges review, they made a really good point that the iPad mini doesn't really have competition, really. I mean, there's Kindle Fire tablets and stuff, but there's nothing really good at this size. Even the smallest uh, Surface, the Surface Go, is quite a bit larger and honestly like not super great. So it's kind of living in its own world, but uh, a world that Apple is still happy to play in, which I think makes a lot of people happy. The iPad Air, I think, is is more interesting because when compared to the iPad Pro, it does lack some things. It lacks the new design. It lacks the Pencil 2. It lacks USB-C. It lacks the quad speakers and Pro Motion, which is the faster refresh rate, but what they've done is take the two things that I really think people cared about most when they looked at the iPad Pro, being the pencil and the keyboard. And if you were looking to buy an iPad to replace a laptop, I think the iPad Air is is sort of like the default for most people now. A, it's four ninety nine, so it's noticeably cheaper than the entry level iPad Pro. At ten point five inches, it's bigger than the than the nine point seven, so it's a little bit nicer for multitasking. And uh, you know, someone who lived with a ten point five inch iPad Pro for over a year, I can tell you that keyboard size is actually really good. I think oh, this yes. is a great product, and I think one that they're going to move a lot of. And they finally sort of have something in the middle. You know, before okay, you can spend nine hundred dollars and get an iPad Pro, and that's before the keyboard and pencil, or you can get the three twenty nine iPad with a. a a screen that's not as good and it's you know a lot smaller there's no keyboard support outside of bluetooth and now there's something in the middle for people who want something cheaper but they could still write with or again replace a notebook for a lot of tasks and i think that they've they've hit all the right notes with this one
2: I agree with Stephen. I think you know the price here is one of the big stories because it really does come awfully close to the iPad Pro at a significantly lower price. So I, I too would be recommend this to people as kind of the default, or, or if you can afford it, and. The Mini, to me, too, is is kind of interesting because last summer, I managed to break my iPad Pro, my 12.9-inch yeah. iPad oh, Pro.
1: Oh, man. I forgot about this, John. It was yeah. so sad.
2: <laughs> it was a very sad story of crunching sounds as my iPad Pro was destroyed between the hinge of my car trunk and a cooler in my trunk. but. As a result, it was still it was relatively close to when the new iPad Pros were coming out. So instead of fixing it, which would have cost something like six hundred dollars, or getting a new one right there, I went with the nine point seven that they introduced last spring in Chicago, and I've really enjoyed it. And since getting the new iPad Pro, that. inch ipad has become kind of my reading consumption ipad where i'll do like light email and social networking and stuff like that but mostly it's for reading researching and that sort of thing i don't do like my writing on it most of the time and this mini to me feels like a size and especially with the pencil support a size that i'd really like to have for just reading a book every now and then watching a few youtube videos you know lying in bed that kind of thing
0: yeah, it's definitely that kind of product where it's so it's so little and it's so capable now that you you buy it because you like the size and you can do pretty much anything you can do with an iPad with it. It's just uh, it's just little, which is a nice thing. What Let's let's talk about the iMacs a little bit. Stephen, I know you had an instant reaction to it uh, that was very similar to the, the question that I tried to phrase gently to the iPad mac product manager which is about their storage but these are you know they're faster they've got the new generation of intel chips in and that'll be good for everybody who's waiting to buy an imac but uh you know what we didn't get is a more radical kind of rethink of not just the imac design but like what makes mac storage what's acceptable mac storage today
1: yeah like you said it so well this is not a groundbreaking update this is a spec bump for the iMac as we've known it for a long time. And really, mostly a spec bump in terms of options, not necessarily default configurations. So on that low end, there's still the non-retina iMac. It's ten ninety nine dollars uh, in US dollars. Unchanged. And it comes this, unchanged. Yeah, <laughs> unchanged. The exact same machine that's been on sale now, what, a year and a half or something? It's been around for a while. And then you move up 200 bucks to the first 4K retina iMac. And both of those machines come with spinning hard drives in their default configurations and 5,400 spin drives, which are painfully slow in our modern era. You can upgrade them to Fusion drives. You can upgrade iMacs to all SSD. But my problem with that is most people, I think, who are just going to buy like a family computer or an iMac to stick in an office, they're going to buy the default configuration. If they walk into an Apple store, that's really all they offer most of the time. And that's just a really bad experience. If you if you buy a twelve hundred or thirteen hundred dollar iMac and it beach balls when you open in system preferences, like that's not awesome. And it leaves people with a bad impression of the Mac in a time where like the Mac really can't afford that. We need people on Team Mac. And it's uh it's just kind of frustrating to see that they couldn't at least go to Fusion Drive on those entry models, like they do every, everywhere else. The whole twenty-seven-inch line all the again the stock configurations are all Fusion Drive, which of course are SSD, a very small SSD married to a a spinning hard drive. I've even gotten feedback in the last couple of days that even a Fusion Drive can be really slow at times sure, if can. you're doing something that spills over into the hard drive. Right. But it's just it's just a little frustrating they couldn't modernize it. There's no T2 chip, so there's none of the new security stuff, and that's because the T2 chip is designed to work with all SSD systems. It doesn't seem able, or Apple hasn't made it possible for it to interact with hard drives or fusion drives. So this is not a modern iMac quite yet. um, And I hope that it is modernized at some point. I think it will be, but this was not that time. It's going to be the twenties before that happens. Now, I think I think so. Yeah.
2: yeah, it was it was disappointing to me too that the default configurations you know remained unchanged because it, those those fifty four hundred RPM drives are are very very slow. I I also it just feels kind of strange to me that we have a Mac Mini that comes SSD only, but we still have <laughs> spinning yeah. discs in an iMac. I, I just don't get that.
0: Well, I think bottom line is that uh, the iMac sells a lot to people who are not super technical. They're not going. to – they like the. One all in one. They don't want to buy a Mac Mini, um, and that and price matters to them. I think the unstated thing. I mean, the, when I did the interview, which is on upgrade with uh, the product manager for iMac, she. Um, she stated very clearly, like we have all of these use cases where the the niches that the iMac fills today, and uh, unstated, I think there is there's a lot of price sensitivity, and the pros are are welcome mm-hmm. to upgrade with all of these features and do all SSD if they want, and they can they can put in you know the the. Vega graphics cards, and they can upgrade to the the higher uh, speed and more core processors. But their core audience of non pros just buys those base models, and the implication is pretty strong that they're very price sensitive. And that's the, and Apple sells a lot of iMacs, so I think that in the end, Apple's just looking at it and saying we can't afford to put that in. I think I I get the Fusion Drive as a compromise. I don't get to Steven's point that base model 4k iMac with only a spinning disc that was a bad decision i think for user experience two years ago and they still haven't changed it and you know i know it's hard to to forego margin um, and i know that ssds are still expensive but this is a fusion drive has a very small amount of storage on it and it does provide a better experience for the users and they didn't even go there so the only real answer is they are too committed to their margins and too committed to those price points which they didn't change unlike almost every other apple product right they did not change the base model price point of any imac which says to me that they feel like they can't they can't raise those prices
1: so i think that's why yeah the imac serves such a wide audience Everyone from buying a family computer to people doing like professional audio and video production. And they have to meet all those needs. And I think there's room to do that clearly with having like better options for more people. Uh, I don't know. I, I hope they they can adjust this in the future.
0: Yeah. And it wouldn't take a lot. Like they could literally say as of today, they, w- without saying anything, they could just change the store and say, well, as of today, that base model is a Fusion Drive. In the Mm -hmm. 21.5 inch iMac They could do that yeah, um, if that, they wanted it be to. Um, also, by the way, I I heard from a lot of people who said, but if I go on Amazon and I buy this thing, it's it only costs this, and that uh, you know, and that's only uh, fifty dollars less than the the, the spinning disk. So why don't they do it? And I had the, that, that moment of like hmm, shopping for products on Amazon is not the same as what products Apple qualifies to be in their systems, and the prices sure. you see are not the prices. So it's like it's complicated, and they know what their limitation. I mean, I am pretty sure that Apple is aware that that fifty four hundred RPM drive in the twenty one point five inch iMac is not good as bad and yet mm-hmm. it's still there why is that well there's got to be a reason right they're not just jerks and it's got to be price and
2: uh and who's buying them and their perceived price sensitivity so and i don't know maybe they'll maybe they'll go away when we can no longer we can no longer source 5400 rpm maybe. <laughs> the, the
0: imac remains by the way the imac remains uh apple's only spinning drive computer left uh, It it already was, and it still is, which I think is also quite a thing, to be the last one standing and then do an update, and you're still the last one standing i would not have expected a year ago the mac mini would beat it <laughs> yeah <laughs> honestly no to all, to all flash and yet uh so the last last thing is airpods new generation of that um great timing because everybody's airpods that they bought when they first came out seemed to have their batteries dying uh i i get the feeling airpods has been a very successful product for apple it uh, uh there are some indications that it, its sales is actually accelerating that it had a huge holiday season that uh uh, so this seems to be one of Apple's most successful products right now, <laughs> and uh, I imagine that they're going to have another huge sales spike now as everybody runs to AirPods 2. It's kind of a minor update, but it is a little bit better and uh, pairs with things faster and uh, is also not a version one product, which means it's probably got some other things going for it. But regardless of what it is, I think they're going to sell a million of them.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, this is another Apple product that I have managed to destroy in the past by putting it through the laundry. Ah, yeah. And- and, and so I bought a new pair of the first generation last, I think it was November or December. So I, my battery is still good. And I think I'm just going to stick with the original ones. Although I do kind of have my eye on the charging case because you can buy that separately for, I think it's $79. And it would be nice to be able to just drop this on a, on a Qi charger on my desk and, and you know, have it charging in the background yeah that
0: wireless charging I think is a is actually a big upgrade, and that's available to anyone. you can actually just buy the wireless charging case and use it with your existing airpods if you want to although right. i I will admit I used this opportunity to just buy a new set of airpods
1: I replaced mine in June of last year, so mine are still going strong mm-hmm. and uh I'm holding off for now just i don't I don't feel like I need to replace them and i I don't feel particularly angsty about not having the uh ahoy telephone feature that this brings so i'm okay for now if they'd come in black it would be a different story but that's
0: true very very interesting week from apple and, and and uh who knows more to come and certainly more to come on monday at the steve jobs theater but uh they're clearing the decks they i think i think you guys are right they just don't want people anticipating hardware on stage. So they're just clearing it out. <laughs> like,
1: Absolutely. Like, oh, Absolutely. Here it
0: is. You already got it. We're, we're done with that. Now we're going to talk about services and we'll, we'll see what happens there. Um, John, thank you for, um, from far off San Francisco. Thank you for coming on Download and, and talking to us about, uh, about
2: Apple and GDC. Oh, Thanks for having me, guys. Where can people find your stuff? They can find me over at maxstories.net and you can listen to me on AppStories.net, which is the podcast that Federico and I do about uh, you know the, the stories behind the apps.
0: Okay, and before we go, one last thing. It is the Fuzzy Puppy update. I'm not feeling too down right now, but I'm still going to share some Fuzzy Puppy news with you. This uh, comes to us from a, uh, a local news station about... A blind eleven-year-old golden retriever. It's a little bit sad. He had uh, he had uh, problems in both eyes, uh, one at a time, uh, and had to have his eyes removed. But you know, blind animals. If you had one, I had a blind cat. They they get around. They they get along. Um, but what happened is his owners. So this is this is uh, Charlie. Uh, His owner's got a puppy, Maverick, Mm -hmm. a golden retriever puppy. So, now there's an 11-year-old blind golden retriever with a four-month-old puppy. Now, puppies, maybe, apparently, the puppy was annoying a little bit, but... Um, the puppy is basically, what I'm saying is that this dog has a seeing eye dog because the puppy like will bring him toys and will lead him around and they, they turn into almost like sled dogs where they're kind of in a line and the sighted dog is leading the other dog. Um, and it's, uh, it's super adorable. So what I'm saying is if you can imagine how cute a golden retriever puppy is, and then imagine that golden retriever puppy is leading a, an older blind dog around, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's as fuzzy as a fuzzy up puppy update can be i think
1: it's very nice uh, Uh,
0: i love the story so cute and uh, of course dog rates uh, gave them 14 out of 10 for both because of course they did because they're Mm -hmm. uh, good boys those dogs charlie and maverick and that brings us to the end of this edition of download uh stephen hackett thank you as always for uh helping me put together the show and uh and telling me about the AT and T CEO's robocall. <laughs> it's which so was, good. I can't stop. I can't stop chuckling about it's it. It's amazing. That is amazing. I get those robocalls on my on my watch every now and then too. It's super annoying. But mm-hmm. Robocalls. They're the worst. They're the worst. Thanks to everybody out there for listening to this week's episode. Thanks to John Voorhees, of course. And uh, we will see you next week after that Apple event, and who knows what else will be going on in the next week. But until then, we will be watching all the headlines, so you don't have to. Goodbye, everybody.